soy poeta. Vengo llegando ahora del norte, del sur, del centro, del mar, de una mina que visité en Copiapó. Vengo llegando de mi casa a la Isla Negra y te pido permiso para entrar en tu casa, para leerte mis versos, para que conversemos. Pensé que en la intimidad deberíamos leer, escuchar, no mis versos últimos, que pueden tener la experiencia de tantos otros que escribí, sino los primeros, mis primeros poemas escritos en Cautín, en mi infancia, antes de los 15 años, cuando se abrían los ojos de mi conciencia y cuando aún el panorama de la vida se veía, se veía tan oscuro para mí como el cielo del sur en invierno. Barrio sin luz. Se da la poesía de las cosas o no la puede condensar mi vida. Ayer, mirando el último crepúsculo, yo era un manchón de musgo entre unas ruinas. Las ciudades, hollines y venganzas, la cochinada gris de los suburbios, la oficina que encorva las espaldas, el jefe de ojos turbios, sangre de un arrebol sobre los cerros, sangre sobre las calles y las plazas, dolor de corazones rotos, podre de hastíos y de lágrimas, un río abraza el arrabal como una mano helada que tienta en las tinieblas, sobre sus aguas se avergüenzan de verse las estrellas, y las casas que esconden los deseos detrás de las ventanas luminosas, mientras afuera el viento lleva un poco de barro a cada rosa, Lejos la bruma de las olvidanzas, unos espesos tajamares rotos y el campo, el campo verde en que jadean los bueyes y los hombres sudorosos. Y aquí estoy yo, brotado entre las ruinas, mordiendo solo todas las tristezas, como si el llanto fuera una semilla y yo el único surco de la tierra. Mi padre era ferroviario. Buenas noches, good evening. That was Pablo Neruda. I'm Ariel Dorfman, and I wanted to welcome you. Dale la bienvenida. I was there 30 years ago in Santiago de Chile, that's September 26th, that's tomorrow, 1973, 30 years ago, when Pablo Neruda was buried in the Cementerio General. <coughs> I was there living in Santiago just a few blocks away, a few miles away from where his body was being lowered into the earth that he had celebrated so sensually. I could have easily walked to that cemetery and joined the men and women chanting next to his coffins. I could have chanted his name with them, I could have said goodbye. I didn't take that walk. I didn't join that chant. 
I didn't attend the funeral and the final journey of the poet who had taught me to love Chile in the Spanish language more than any author in the world. It's one of the few things in my life that I regret. When I had arrived in Chile in 1954 from the United States, I was a 12-year-old boy who had been born in Argentina and yet spoke barely a word of Spanish. And at that time, I had not heard of Neruda and certainly could not have recited one of his verses. In the next decade, however, as I was seduced by Chile and its syllables, Neruda was to slowly seep into my life and then take it by storm. My first encounter with the great poet, as far as I can recall, was at the age of 14. Love lorn for an impossibly luscious and distant girl, a few years my elder. I was counseled by one of my classmates to whisper in her ear, if I could ever get close enough, that is, the words, Puedo escribir los versos más tristes esta noche. Tonight, I can write the saddest lines. And she would, my mentor insisted, fall into my arms and surrender those forbidden lips. I timidly tried, but my delivery and accent must have been as deplorable as my timing, because she answered, Neruda, 20 poemas de amor. You are the fifth kid to repeat those lines to me this month, and dismissed me with an epitaph for my aspirations. Wanted to try, mejor, una canción desesperada, referring to a desperate song, a Neruda poem I should have known but did not. Obviously, many other youngsters in Chile were using and abusing the same tactic. And I wanted to impress the ladies. It seems I would have to dig deeper into Neruda's repertoire. Soon enough, I was diligently immersed in the ardent couplets of Reverso del Capitan, which Neruda at that point had not yet signed as his, but we all knew it was a secret, a voces, that it was his. In the years that followed, Neruda was to be my guide at every step on my faltering road to self-expression and reinvention. Vast and inexhaustible, he was always there at the tip of my tongue, ready to interpret the hostile, mysterious world. Neruda invariably available for the plucking and the telling, an endless source for every mood and every requirement. Inagotable. When I needed to seize the world in all its turmoil, plunge into my own fears of the dissolution, my own hopes for a daily resurrection, explore the fluctuating borders between dream and nightmare and the oceanic chaos of everyday life, there was Residencia en la Tierra. And it was, when it was a matter of naming the America del Sur I had now embraced as my own, there was the Canto General, the birds and rivers, the mountains and stones commemorated, commemorated in all their splendor and complexity, as well as Suena ser conmigo, hermano, rise up and be born again with me, my brother. The whole furious history of Latin America retold with outrage for the forgotten and violated lives of the myriad poor and dispossessed with reverence, a special Neruda reverence for their dignity and labors. What is a matter of looking at my own feet, of finding words for what it meant to bathe in the icy volcanic sea that Neruda also loved, of discovering the enigmas of the artichoke and the socks and the color blue. It was Neruda in his horas elementales, always Neruda who opened the exact colloquial window into the exact vocabulary of the heart, like a furtive best friend murmuring to me a world full of wonders, also wondering all the while while the world could not be as beautiful for its inhabitants as it was for its poets. Politics, love, fish soup, caldillo, right? Alleyways, clocks, heroes, brothels, dictators, nuns, breasts, pechos, albatrosses, shoes, hands, carpenters, hands, hands, manos, manos, always hands. No matter what you wanted to know about life, Neruda had already been there. Neruda had a surfeit and excess of words. And most of them, no, not all of them, let's admit, right? Most of them were close to perfection. And now he was dead and I was not going to his funeral. He had died of cancer, but also of sadness. The sorrow of the coup against democracy on September 11th, 1973, 
the heartbreak of the death of Salvador Allende, of so many other friends and compatriots being rounded up, tortured, executed, all of it too much for Neruda, who had spent most of his life fighting as a communist for the social justice and economic sovereignty that were being crushed by the military. A climate of fear descended on us, of the, sort, of the suffocating sort Neruda himself had so often described in his poems. The blood he had denounced in Republican Spain in 1936 and invited the whole world to come and see flowing in the streets. La sangre de la calle, right? And had now descended over his own peaceful Chile, invading and silencing every inhabitant. It was that fear that kept me from Neruda's last rites. I had gone into hiding after the coup and was looking for a way to leave the country. And the most foolish thing I could have done, I muttered to myself, regretfully, was to make an appearance at a funeral, sure to be crawling with soldiers and government spies. Thousands of other Chileans, perhaps more desperate than I was, certainly more imprudent, definitely more valiant, decided to defy the authorities and conquer their own dread. From all over Santiago, they converged upon the Cementerio General that day 30 years ago. Friends of mine later told me that it was at first a mute and desolate multitude, and that a voice had emerged from the depths of the crowd and called out, Compañero Paulo Neruda! And hundreds of voices had thundered back, Presente! And the nearby troops had not known what to do, how to react to this homage to Chile's greatest poet, Latin America's most popular writer, one of the most extraordinary voices of the 20th century, or any other century. And then the same baritone, it turns out that it was the great novelist, Francisco Coloane, had blared out, Compañero Salvador Allende, demanding the presence and recognition of the dead president who had been buried anonymously two weeks before. And again, Presente, came the cry of those who had been unable to mourn publicly their dead dream and would have far too much to mourn in the next 17 years of the Pinochet dictatorship. Neruda must have smiled from the other side of death. He believed above all in the body, its juices, its bones, its genitalia, its hairs and nostrils and skin. And it must have been a vindication of his vision to realize that his supposedly dead body had become the spark and starting point for the Chilean resistance that this funeral gathering turned out to be the first attempt by the people Neruda had divided his, his life to singing about, their first attempt to take back the public spaces forbidden to them. And symbolic that this inaugural challenge to the forces of darkness and doom and authority from on high would surge from the farewell ceremony to a wordsmith who had himself always proclaimed the poets were not gods, but more like bakers of bread or builders of houses entangled in the everyday underlife of ordinary men and women and always sharing their fate. Yes, it was fitting that it should, have, it should be those men and those women who had, like me, been nurtured and nourished all through their existence by the verses of Pablo Neruda. It was somehow right that they should be the first ones to tell the world that their bard had not really, really left them. Swear that they would keep him alive merely by remembering the hot shadow of his words when they made love and they drink, drank red wine and breathed in the dazzling night of the sea. Recall him when they were saddened at twilight and exalted at dawn and outraged at injustice. I believe Neruda would have wanted his last act on this earth to have been a prelude or maybe an intimation of something better, that remote day when the planet would be worthy of the poems he offered us so generously and still resonate and endure beyond his death and ours. And who knows, maybe they endure and resonate even beyond the death of the tumultuous universe he celebrated himself. Thank you.
Good evening, friends. My name is Jorge del Rio, and I come from Chile. As a Chilean poet and as a board member of the Neruda Foundation, it's for me an enormous pleasure and honor to be here taking part with all of you in this significant moment of immortal poetry. Chile, and especially the Neruda Foundation, are very grateful to see and to confirm how poetry of our Nobel Prize have no limits of language. The translation of Neruda's poetical works made today by important English-speaking poets and compiled by Ilan Stavans is the great demonstration that Neruda and universal poetry lives in the American sensitivity. This sense of life coming from the very inside poem that whispers in American people has been able in these days to go beyond every suffering and pain. A long time ago, one of yours wrote, I have heard what the talkers were talking, the talk of the beginning and the end, but I do not talk of the beginning or the end. Urge and urge and urge, always the procreant urge of the world. Pablo Neruda immediately recognized the leaves of grass and Walt Whitman appearance as an old picture over his table. He then replied with the highest of Machu Picchu, piedra en la piedra, El hombre, donde estuvo? Aire en el aire, el hombre, donde estuvo? Tiempo en el tiempo, el hombre, donde estuvo? Sube a nacer conmigo, hermano. Yo vengo a hablar por vuestra boca muerta. Dear friends, as we can realize, poetry always walks further, further than geography, further than time further than shadows and even further than life. No wall and no gun will be able to stop the poetry song coming nearby. In the world of poetry, each of one of us, writers and readers, remains closer to the other. And the nearest we feel each other, the nearest we find ourselves together. We can listen the poet's voice claiming, and behind the voice, his words calling, and with his call, the necessary recognition that in our time, we have to be treated as human beings and not as a human resource. We need to respect our individual condition as an individual treasure, as well as we need to share this individual treasure with the community requirements. This is the road in which poetry keeps our senses alive. Just keep going through, because at least in our blood, poetry will never surrender. Thank you very much. Good evening, buenas noches. Uh, we're supposed to say our names, and uh, I'm not April Bernard. <laughs> I'm Rafael Campos, and uh, I wanted to just say something very brief about Neruda and his poetry. I think sometimes we hear people talk about Neruda as, a, as sort of two different poets, the poet of, of politics and of 
of revolution and the poet of, of love or of romance. And the more I read this absolutely astounding uh, collection of, of his work, the more I realize he is actually really both those things at the same time, always. Uh, he, to my mind, really is a, a poet of, of where those two uh, impulses uh, overlap or intersect. Uh, he's really, I think, a poet of, of tremendous empathy. And so, on that note, I'd like to read uh, a few of his poems for you tonight. Uh, the first one is from uh, Cancion de Gesta, Song of Protest, and it's translated by Miguel Algarín, and it's called Ancient History. Now I open my eyes and I remember. It sparkles and dims, electric and dark, with joys and suffering, the bitter and magic history of Cuba. Years passed as fish pass through the blue of the sea and its sweetness. The island lived in liberty and dance. The palm trees danced with the foam. Blacks and whites were a single loaf of bread because Marti needed their ferment. Peace fulfilled its destiny of gold and the sun crackled in the sugar while ripened by the sun fell a beam of honey over the fruit. Man was content with his reign and family with its agriculture when from the north arrived a seed threatening, covetous, unjust, that like a spider spread her threads, extending a metallic structure that drove bloodied nails into the land, raising over the dead a vault. It was the dollar with its yellow teeth, commandment of blood and grave. Uh, this next poem is from Ceremonial Songs, Cantos Ceremoniales, and uh, it's just a section of that uh, piece called The Unburied Woman, and it's translated by uh, Maria Giacchetti. The Unburied Woman. In Paita, we asked about her, the dead woman, so that we could touch, could feel the earth of the buried woman's radiance. They did not know. The old balustrades, the balconies in the sky, an aged city of vines with an intrepid aroma, like a basket of invisible mangoes, pineapples, deep chirimoyas, the market flies buzz over the neglect and abandon among the severed fish heads and the Indian women seated selling uncertain spoils with ferocious majesty, queens from a realm of subterranean copper. The day was enshrouded in clouds. The day was weary. The day was a lost traveler on foot on a road of dust and bewilderment. I stopped the boy the man, the old man. They did not know where Manuela had perished or where had her home had once existed or where the powder of her bones now rested. Above, the burnished hills traveled, dry as camels, on a motionless journey, on a trip with the dead. And because water is movement, the spring runs without rest, the river grows and sings, there the hard mountains walked with time. The ages 
the quiescent travels of plush hills. I asked them about Manuelita, but they did not know. They did not remember the names of flowers. We asked the sea, the ancient ocean, in the foam of breaking waves, the Peruvian sea opened old Incan eyes, and the toothless turquoise mouth began to speak. And the last one I'll read tonight is uh, one that I translated from Cien Sonetos del Amor, uh, the love sonnets. And this is number 94. Should I die? Survive me with a force so pure that you awaken fury from the pale, chill world. In all directions, raise your indelible eyes. Day in, day out, sound your mouth's guitar. I don't want your footsteps to vacillate, nor your smile wane. I don't want my bequeathed joy to die. Don't come knocking at my chest, I'm away. Dwell in my absence as you would in my estate. Absence is such a vast house that you will walk through its walls and hang paintings in the air. Absence is such a transparent house that without my own life, I will watch you live. And if I see you suffer, my love, I will die again. Thank you. Buenas noches. I am uh, Martin Espada. Pablo Neruda is my greatest influence and inspiration as a poet. Uh, I teach a course on Neruda's life and work at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Once I even had a birthday party for Neruda, <laughs> even though he didn't show up. I'll read uh, two of my own translations of Neruda from the anthology and then a poem of my own in praise of Neruda. This first translation uh, is a poem of the sea from Maremoto or Seaquake. It's called Octopi. Oh, octopus. Oh, fierce monk. The trembling of your garb flows across the salt of the rock, satanic and slippery. Oh, visceral testimony, branch of frozen rays, head of a monarchy all arms and foreboding, portrait of shivering, plural cloud of black rain. From time to time, uh, poets will challenge other poets to take a stand on a matter of conscience, to speak out. A good example recently would be Sam Hamill's organization, Poets Against the War. The same was true in Neruda's day. In this next poem, he asks his fellow poets a question. What did you do? 
This is from Canto General. It's called The Celestial Poets. What did you do, you Gideons, intellectualizers, Rilkeans, <laughs> mystifiers, false as existential sorcerers, surrealist butterflies incandescent in the tomb, urophile cadavers in fashion, pale worms in the capitalist cheese, what did you do confronted with the reign of anguish in the face of this dark human being, this kicked around dignity, this head immersed in manure, this essence of coarse and trampled lives? You did nothing but take flight, sold a stack of debris, searched for celestial hair, cowardly plants, fingernail clippings, pure beauty, spells, works of the timid good for averting the eyes, for the confusion of delicate pupils, surviving on a plate of dirty leftovers tossed at you by the masters, not seeing the stone in agony. No defense, no conquest, more blind than wreaths at the cemetery when rain falls on the flowers still and rotten among the tombs. I'll finish with a poem of my own in praise of Pablo Neruda and the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> the year is 1948. Pablo Neruda is underground, hunted by the Chilean government. No one knows where he is except me. The Fugitive Poets of Fenway Park, Boston, Massachusetts, 1948. The Chilean secret police searched everywhere for the poet Neruda in the dark shafts of mines, in the boxcars of railroad yards, in the sewers of Santiago. The government intended to confiscate his mouth and extract the poems one by one like bad teeth. But the mines and boxcars and sewers were empty. I know where he was. Neruda was at Fenway Park, <laughs> burly and bearded in a flat black cap hidden in the kaleidoscope of the bleachers. He sat quietly chomping a hot dog when Ted Williams walked to the crest of the diamond, slender as my father remembers him, squinting at the pitcher, bat swinging in a memory of trees. The stroke was a pendulum of long muscle and wood. Ted's face tilted up, the home run zooming into the right field grandstand. Then the crowd stood together, cheering for this blasphemer of newsprint, the heretic who would not tip his cap as he towed home plate or grinned like a war hero at the sports writer surrounding his locker for a quote. The fugitive poet could not keep silent, standing on his seat to declaim the ode erupted in crowd-bewildering Spanish from his mouth. Praise Ted Williams! Raising his sword cut from the ash tree, the ball a white planet glowing in the atmosphere of the right field grandstand. Praise the wall rising like a great green wave from the green sea of the outfield. 
praise the hot dog. <laughs> Pink meat, pork snouts, sawdust, mouse feces. <laughs> Human hair plugging our intestines yet baptized joyfully with mustard. Praise the wobbling drunk, seasick beer in hand, staring at the number on his ticket, demanding my seat. Everyone gawked at the man standing on his seat, bellowing poetry in Spanish. Anonymous, no longer Neruda, saw the Chilean secret police as they scrambled through the bleachers, pointing and shouting, so the poet jumped a guardrail to disappear through a Fenway tunnel, the black cap flying from his head and spinning into center field. This is true. I was there at Fenway on August the 7th, 1948, even if I was born exactly nine years later, when my father almost named me Theodore. Gracias. I'm John Felstener. I, I wanted to say, first of all, that of the, the many wonderful things about this gathering tonight, primarily this incredible, wonderful book that Ilan has done, and then listening to Neruda's voice, which I'd never heard in that particular talk, which was both heart-lifting and in some way heart-rending at the same time. The third great thing for me has been a, uh, a re-encounter, meeting up again after literally 36 years with the first person you heard speak tonight. I have an indelible memory when I arrived in Chile in 1967, in July, of doing two things in the first few days. One was I was taken to La Peña, where we heard Victor Jara and Rolando Alarcón and Isabel and Angel uh, Parra all in one night. And the other thing was going to a sort of um, indoctrination session, and a young man, I realize now he was 25 years old, came and read to a few of us Fulbright professors and such, Explico Algunas Cosas in Spanish. And I, it was like a fusing, some kind of a catalytic moment where it all came true to me at once, and that was Ariel Dorfman, whom I pretty much haven't seen in these 36 years, so it was worth it coming from California just for that. Uh, I'm... Neruda has already been introduced, but um, someone was not invited here, and despite the fact that it's not an anthology, I'm going to let him just have a few words about Neruda. He introduced Pablo Neruda, and he told me he couldn't be here tonight, Federico Garcia Lorca, in December of 1934 in Madrid, introduced Neruda this way. I say you are about to hear an authentic poet, one who has forged himself in a world that's not ours, that few people perceive, a poet closer to death than philosophy, to pain than intellect, to blood than ink. A poet filled with mysterious voices that luckily he himself doesn't know the meaning of. A true man who does know that the reed and the swallow are more permanent than the hard cheek on a statue. He stands up to the world full of honest terror and lacks two things so many false poets have lived with, hate and irony. When he is about to condemn and raises his sword, suddenly he finds himself with a wounded dove between his fingers. Federico. So I'll just read uh, a few short poems that I've done for this anthology. 
in kind of chronological order. The first one is called Cortes. Cortes, and it comes from the Canto General, of course. Cortes has no people, is a cold beam, heart dead in the armor. Fruitful lands, my lord and king, mosques that have gold encrusted thick by the Indian's hand. And advances burying daggers, beating the lowlands, the pawed up fragrant cordilleras, camping his troop among orchids and crowning pines, trampling jasmine up to the gates of Tlaxcala. My downcast brother, make no friend of the red-flushed vulture. I speak from the mossy earth to you, from the roots of our realm. Tomorrow will rain blood, will raise tears enough for mist and fumes and rivers until your own eyes dissolve. Cortes receives a dove, receives a pheasant, a zither from the king's musicians, but he wants the room full of gold, wants one thing more, and everything falls into the plunderer's chests. The king leans out from a balcony. This is my brother, he says. The stones of the people fly up in answer, and Cortes whets his daggers on quizzling kisses. He returns to Tlaxcala. The wind bears a muted rumor of lament. And this is a poem from a very much more autumnal Neruda called Guilty, El Culpable. I declare myself guilty of not having made with these hands they gave me a broom. Why did I make no broom? Why did they give me hands? What use have they been if all I ever did was watch the stir of the grain, listen up for the wind and did not gather straws still green in the earth for a broom, not set the soft stalks to dry and bind them in a gold bundle, and did not lash a wooden stick to the yellow skirt till I had a broom for the paths. So it went. How did my life get by without seeing and learning and gathering and binding the basic things? It's too late to deny I had the time, the time, yet the hands were lacking. So how could I aim for greatness if I was never able to make a broom? Not one, not even one. And this, since it's the last poem chronologically in the anthology, could well be a kind of farewell of Pablo Neruda's. It's called, wonderfully enough, El Gran Orinador. The great, uh, and you should perhaps know, although it's painful to remember, that Neruda died not only of the jolt of the devastating golpe, the coup, but I believe he was suffering from prostate cancer and thus El Gran Orinador. The great urinator was yellow, and the stream that came down was bronze-colored rain on the domes of churches, on the roofs of cars, on factories and cemeteries, on the populace and their gardens. Who was it? Where was it? It was a density, thick liquid, falling as from a horse, and frightened passers-by with no umbrellas, looked up skyward. Meanwhile, avenues were flooding, and urine inexhaustibly flowing underneath doors, backing up drains, disintegrating marble floors, carpets, staircases. Nothing could be detected. Where was this peril? What was going to happen to the world? From on high, the great urinator was silent and urinated. Callaba y orinaba. 
What does this signify? I am a pale and artless poet, not here to work out riddles or recommend special umbrellas. Hasta la vista. I greet you and go off to a country where they won't ask me questions. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. My name is Edward Hirsch. Um, I first read Pablo Neruda when I was in my late teens and early 20s. And um, the first Neruda that I fell in love with was Residence on Earth and The Despair Called to Me. Later I fell in love with The Odes and The Celebration Called to Me in Neruda. But I think that beyond both of these two modes or within these two modes, what I really responded to most deeply in Neruda was the human presence and the sense of a human-centered poetry. And um, for a boy like me who was putting himself to school on American modernism and Anglo-American modernism, I just want to say that a human-centered poetry is not something to be taken for granted. In fact, human feeling was basically banished by Pound and Eliot and other Anglo-American modernism. <laughs> well, I don't think it was such a great thing for them to do that, but okay. Um, <laughs> um, so Neruda offered a kind of alternative. Um, and it's worth keeping in mind that uh, the poetry can serve human ends and it can be written on behalf of people. And a great sympathy flows out from Neruda, which I think is even deeper than politics. Um, and that's human beings at the center of his work. And this has always called to me, and I think it always will. Um, I'm going to read two poems, which uh, with Ilan's help I translated, Ode to the Book One and Ode to the Book Two. Um, this is a wonderful book, but I do recommend not reading it from the beginning to the end, because that means you won't get to my translations until page 918. <laughs> so you might want to skip ahead and then go back to the beginning. Ode to the book one. Book, when I close you, life itself opens. I hear broken screams in the harbor. The copper slugs cross the sandy areas descending to Tokopia. It is night. Between the islands, our ocean palpitates with fish. It touches the feet, the thighs, the chalky ribs of my homeland. Night touches the shoreline and rises while singing at daybreak like a guitar awakening. I feel the irresistible force of the ocean's call. I am called by the wind and called by Rodriguez Jose Antonio, I received a telegram from the MENA Workers Union, and the one I love, I won't tell you her name, waits for me in Bocalomo. Book, you haven't been able to enwrap me. You haven't covered me with topography, with celestial impressions. You haven't been able to trap my eyes between covers. I leave you so I can populate groves with the horse family of my song, to work burning metals or to eat grilled meat at the fireside in the mountains. I love books that are explorers, books with forest and snow, depth and sky, but I despise the book of spiders that employs thought to weave its venomous wires to trap the young and unsuspecting fly. Book, free me. I don't want to be entombed like a volume. I don't come from a tome. My poems don't eat poems. They devour passionate events. They're nurtured by the open air and fed by the earth and by men. Book, let me wander the road with dust in my low shoes and without mythology. Go back to the library 
while I go into the streets. I've learned, I've learned to take life from life, to love after a single kiss. And I didn't teach anything to anyone except what I myself lived, what I shared with other men, what I fought along with them, what I expressed from all of us in my song. An ode to the book, too. Book, beautiful book, little forest, leaf after leaf, your paper smells of the elements. You are daily and nocturnal, grain, ocean. In your ancient pages, bear hunters, bonfires along the Mississippi, canoes and islands. Later on, roads and more roads, revelations, rebellious towns. Rambeau like an injured, blood-soaked fish gasping in the mud, and the beauty of brotherhood, stone by stone building the human castle, grief interwoven with firmness, solidarity, a cult book passed from pocket to pocket, a secret lamp, a red star. We, the wandering poets, explored the world. Life welcomed us at every door. We joined in the earthly struggle. What was our victory? A book a book filled with human connections, with shirts, without isolation, with men and tools. A book is our victory. A book ripens and falls like all fruits. It has light and shadow, but its pages are torn away. It gets lost in the streets, buried in the earth. Book of poetry dawning, come back again to hold snow or moss in your pages so that the footsteps or the eyes can leave their traces. Once again, describe the world for us, our freshwater springs in the thickets, groves of tall trees, the polar planets, and human beings on the roads, on the new roads, advancing in the jungle, on the water, in the sky, in the naked solitude of the sea, human beings discovering the ultimate secrets, human beings returning with a book, the hunter coming home with a book, the farmer working the land with a book. Hi, I'm Jean Hirschfield. This is Neruda's Ode to Time. Inside your body, your age is growing. Inside my body, my age places foot after wandering foot. Time is unwavering. It never rings its bell for time out. It increases. It journeys. It shows up within us like water that deepens within our own watching until, next to the chestnut burning that is your eyes, a slender grass blade arrives and the trace of a tiny river and a small dry star ascends to your lips. Then time raises its threads in your hair and still in my heart, your fragrance of honeysuckle lives like a fire. It is beautiful how, as we live, we grow old in the living. Each day was a transparent stone. Each night for us was a rose of blackness. And this crease that has come to your face, to mine, is its stone or its flower, the souvenir and memory of a bolt of lightning. 
My eyes were consumed by your loveliness, but you have become my eyes. I exhausted your twin breasts under my kisses, it seems, but all have viewed in my joy their secret splendor. Love, it doesn't matter if time, that same time that lifted my body and your softness as if they were two rising flames or two stalks of wheat side by side, tomorrow keeps them aloft and living or mills them away. The same invisible fingers erasing the very existence that kept us apart will give us our victory of being a single being under the earth. Neruda, like Wickman, is a cosmos, a poet beyond calibration or categorization. Spiritually, in the depth of his observation and given attention, in the depth and width of his passion, Neruda I knew that tonight, between all of my companions, we would cover many sides of this multiple poet. The Neruda, whose poem I co-translated for this volume, is the love poet, and in this case, a kind especially dear to any woman who has started to find in her own body the footprints of unwavering time, a poet of late life love. But the poet I'd like to bring forward tonight is Neruda as himself a translator, as a kind of ambassador into the realm of human life and human speech for the multitudinous forms of existence. Translation's essential act is to perceive with the full being an original thing, to take it in, and to bring it forth again with both fidelity and a newly originated and reilluminated life. Neruda trained himself to be as open to this kind of transforming and renovating reception as any poet in literature. To come at this quality in his work from a quite different direction, a 13th century Japanese Zen master, Eihei Dogen, once said, to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be open to the 10,000 things. This is a process I think we can see in Neruda, and I would like to read you two additional poems tonight, each in consummate translations by Alastair Reed, who I understand would have been here tonight if he were not in England. The first of them, We Are Many, shows the poet at the very moment when studying the self begins to turn into something wider, when what Neruda calls in the poem the real self becomes in fact not merely personal, but a self widened, identified with the world. I came from California, so I didn't bring the book. It weighs a lot. We are many. Of the many men who I am, who we are, I can't find a single one. They disappear among my clothes. They've left for another city. When everything seems to be set to show me off as intelligent, the fool I always keep hidden takes over all that I say. At other times, I'm asleep among distinguished people, and when I look for my brave self, a coward unknown to me rushes to cover my skeleton with a thousand fine excuses. When a decent house catches fire, 
Instead of the fireman I summon, an arsonist bursts on the scene, and that's me. What can I do? What can I do to distinguish myself? How can I pull myself together? All the books I read are full of dazzling heroes, always sure of themselves. I die with envy of them, and in films full of wind and bullets, I giggle at the cowboys, I even admire the horses. But when I call for a hero, out comes my lazy old self. So I never know who I am, nor how many I am or will be. I'd love to be able to touch a bell and summon the real me, because if I really need myself, I mustn't disappear. While I am writing, I'm far away, and when I come back, I've gone. I would like to know if others go through the same things that I do, have as many selves as I have, and see themselves similarly. And when, I'm ex when I've exhausted this problem, I'm going to study so hard that when I explain myself, I'll be talking geography. <laughs> the self-explained as a geography is, I think, what we find especially in the odes to everyday objects, in which Neruda put his full imaginative powers and his immense compassion into a kind of Hermes service, guiding the soul ever deeper into the aliveness and multiplicity of things. It is a fundamentally democratic and liberating gesture. In his outward life in the world, Neruda was, of course, an actual ambassador for his country. In his poems, he became equally an ambassador between the human and the inanimate, between the inner and the outer, between the ordinary and the luminous. What he showed is that they are not separate or different. If the poet's task, and I hope Martin will excuse me for, and Neruda will excuse me for quoting Rilke, um, if the poet's task, as Rilke once described it, is to imprint this provisional perishing earth in ourselves so deeply with such passion and endurance that its reality rises again in us, end quote, that task was fulfilled consummately in Neruda's odes. But he did not ever divide the spiritual from the social. And so I want to finish by giving you Neruda's own definition of the work of the poet as one of the great heart paths towards both inner and outer actual freedom in the poet's obligation. Neruda wrote many great poems about poetry itself and I don't think this is actually amongst the very greatest of them, but it does offer his own understanding of his role, and in that understanding is the greatness of soul that trumps any form of calibration, that restores our hopes for poetry to something beyond even beauty, a genuine remaking of our human lives. The Poet's Obligation. To whoever is not listening to the sea this Friday morning, to whoever is cooped up in house or office, factory or woman or street or mine or dry prison cell, to him I come, and without speaking or looking I arrive and open the door of his prison. 
and a vibration starts up, vague and insistent. A long rumble of thunder adds itself to the weight of the planet, and the foam, the groaning rivers of the ocean rise. The star vibrates quickly in its corona, and the sea beats, dies, and goes on beating. So, drawn on by my destiny, I ceaselessly must listen to and keep the seas lamenting in my consciousness. I must feel the crash of the hard water and gather it up in a perpetual cup so that wherever those in prison may be, wherever they suffer in the sentence of the autumn, I may be present with an errant wave. I may move in and out of windows and hearing me, eyes may lift themselves asking, how can I reach the sea? And I will pass to them, saying nothing. The starry echoes of the wave, a breaking up of foam and quicksand, a rustling of salt withdrawing itself, the gray cry of seabirds on the coast. So through me, freedom and the sea will call in answer to the shrouded heart. Canal, and I'm going to read one poem uh, in my translation of um, Pablo Neruda. Uh, explico algunas cosas. I'll explain a few things. Uh, I want to read this poem, first of all, because I think it's a tremendous poem, uh, holding in itself the greatest tenderness and the greatest anger and revulsion and um, because I think it speaks to us now in America. It was intended, I think, that, um, or I, I understood that, that this evening would end with a tape recording of Neruda reading uh, this poem. And for technical reasons, that proved impossible. Uh, I'm very sorry about that because that reading that uh, recording, um, which I have a copy of myself, is one of the greatest readings I've ever heard. I, was, uh, I attended the reading at the 92nd Street Y. It was in the early 1970s. And uh, Neruda read like a man possessed, possessed by the duende. Uh, it was extraordinary. And there were many, many refugees from Spain, uh, from the Spanish Civil War. Uh, they are older and saddened, but still uh, that war was the major event in their lives. My um, in-laws were themselves refugees from Spain, and I sat with them. And I didn't really know there were so many others in the, uh, in the audience, uh, 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 a house as packed as this is tonight. Uh, but I heard a, as Neruda, he ended his reading with, the, with this poem, and when he was reading this poem, uh, I heard a strange noise uh, all around me. I didn't know what it could be. It wasn't coming from Neruda. And I looked around, and I saw 
that everybody was gently sobbing. Uh, so, there is the, this poem is based on the uh, word you. And the you refers to begin with, I take it as a, to the, um, to his readers, or perhaps even, or, and perhaps even to his critics. And then uh, a little later in the poem, the you is directed at the poets that he had known in Spain and loved. And then it's a, it's a, the you is addressed to the uh, generals who are bringing this catastrophe onto Spain. And uh, then at the very end, he addresses the readers again. I'll explain a few things. You will ask, but where are the lilacs and the metaphysics covered with poppies and the rain that often struck his words, filling them with holes and birds? Let me tell you what's happening with me. I lived in a barrio in Madrid with bells, with clocks, with trees. From there you could see the parched face of Castile like an ocean of leather. My house was called the House of Flowers because from everywhere geraniums burst. It was a beautiful house with dogs and children. Raul, do you remember? Do you remember Raphael? Federico, do you remember under the ground? Do you remember my house with balconies where the June light drowned the flowers in your mouth? Brother, brother. Everything was loud voices, salt of goods, crowds of pulsating bread, marketplaces in my barrio of Arguez with its statue like a pale inkwell set down among the hay. Oil flowed into spoons, a deep throbbing of feet and hands filled the streets, meters, liters, the hard edges of life, heaps of fish, geometry of roofs under a cold sun in which the weather vane grew tired, delirious fine ivory of potatoes, tomatoes, more tomatoes all the way to the sea. And one morning it all was burning and one morning, bonfires sprang out of the earth, devouring humans. And from then on, fire, gunpowder from then on, and from then on, blood. Bandidos with plains and moors, bandidos with rings and duchesses, bandidos with black friars signing the cross as they came down from the sky to kill children. And in the streets, the blood of children ran simply like the blood of children. Jackals, the jackals would despise. Stones, the dry thistle would bite on and spit out. Vipers, the vipers would abominate. Facing you, I have seen the blood of Spain rise up to drown you in a single wave of pride and knives. Traitors, generals, look at my dead house. Look at Spain broken. From every house, burning metal comes out instead of flowers. From every crater of Spain comes Spain. From every dead child comes
comes a rifle with eyes. From every crime, bullets are born that one day will find out in you the sight of the heart. You will ask, why doesn't his poetry speak to us of dreams, of leaves, of the great volcanoes of his native land? Come and see the blood in the streets. Come and see the blood in the streets. Come and see the blood in the streets. I'm uh, Gary Soto from California, and um, I'm going to stutter here, speak in uh, non sequiturs. I'm going to get uh, tongue-tied. Uh, I feel like a, a lover talking to his lover. In this case, it's me to Neruda. I fell in love with his poetry and his being in 1973. I was a geography major at Fresno State College, turned English major, and I had no idea about what literature was all about, took a course in modern poetry and discovered T.S. Eliot, a sour old man <laughs> who wore spats, garters for his socks, pasted down his hair, and I asked myself, do people like this stuff? <laughs> and then that year I turned 21, my brother gave me a book, the only uh, gift that he gave me in the form of a book, and it was Pablo Neruda's selected poems, and uh, W.S. Merwin was one of the translators, and Nathaniel Tarn uh, Kerrigan. And, uh, and I went back, I looked at T.S. Eliot, and I thought, people like that stuff? And I said, he's a really, kind of, it was such a mystery for me that uh, even the T.S., I said, his parents are so cruel, they didn't give him a real name. So for me, in 1973, when I began to write poetry, Neruda was a, a model for my own work, and not only for the work itself, but also on how to be a man. And it's no mystery that I have two books granted for young readers, one called uh, Canto Familiar and the other one, uh, Neighborhood Odes. They do exude the voice of Pablo Neruda uh, in this work. Uh, his work has always been enriching for me, and noble, and I have one translation I would like to read tonight, and I really embarrassed that I did not translate uh, more poems for this wonderful anthology, and the poem is called House. Maybe this is the house where I lived when I did not exist, when the earth did not exist, when everything was moon or stone or shadow, when the motionless light had yet to rise, Maybe then this stone was my house, my windows and my eyes. It reminds me, this granite rose, of something that inhabited me, or that I inhabited, cave or cosmic head of dreams, cup or castle or ship, or source of my beginning. I touch the rock's tenacious effort, its bulwark beaten in the brine, and I know that here remain my crevices, the wrinkled substance that climbed from the depths to my soul. I was stone, 
will be stone. That is why I touch the stone, and for me, it has not died. It's what I was, what I will be, rest from a battle as long as time. Thank you very much. Good evening, my name is Ilan Stavans. Uh, the Spanish language is uh, extraordinarily lucky to have Pablo Neruda. Probably the English language is luckier for having so many extraordinary translators that have brought or had sought to bring Pablo Neruda into this elastic and very democratic uh, tongue. Working on 60 or on 600 different poems with a passionate, a committed, and a astounding people was an experience I, I will never forget. And to thank each and every one of the 37 that make this book, which for, in my eyes, in my mind is not only about Neruda, but about the translators that have made Neruda possible, uh, would be impossible. I want to thank, as I have done it before, Jonathan Galassi, a friend of poetry in, an unfriendly, in the unfriendly world of publishing in the US, an extraordinary translator whom I admire thoroughly and a poet himself for making a home and a space to Neruda. I want to thank a number of institutions for making the poets that appear in this book come alive in front of me and also, I guess, in front of you uh, by paying tickets and uh, doing every possible arrangement. Um, the Center for the Humanities for hosting this event, Harold Augenbraum at the Mercantile Library, Oscar Fuentes at the Chilean Consulate, Andrea J. Gavarin and Peter Mayer at Penn American Center who uh, came up with the idea and promoted it all the way Teresita Levy at the Center for Latin American, Caribbean, and Latina Studies, Mike Romanos at Poets House, Avon Sweeney, the many phone calls and emails, Avon, thank you, uh, Director of Programming at the Center for the Humanities. I want to remind you also that aside from the words in Spanish and in English that you have heard, there is a photographic exhibit of Neruda uh, that also includes posters uh, and covers of his books upstairs in the lobby on your way out next to the Siegel Theater. And out of the 600 poems, I had to choose one to conclude the evening, um, and it was probably the toughest of all tasks. I chose one uh, that for me began the entire uh, journey when a beloved student of mine asked me to read it in his wedding. And in order to perpetuate the symmetry that we have had today, I would like to invite the poet Jorge del Rios to read it first in Spanish, and then I will read the translation by Donald Walsh.
de los versos del capitán Turriza. Quítame el pan, si quieres, quítame el aire, pero no me quites tu risa. No me quites la rosa, la lanza que desgranas, el agua que de pronto estalla en tu alegría, la repentina ola de plata que te nace. Mi lucha es dura y vuelvo con los ojos cansados a veces de haber visto la tierra que no cambia, pero al entrar tu risa sube al cielo buscándome y abre para mí todas las puertas de la vida. Amor mío, en la hora más oscura desgrana tu risa y si de pronto ves que mi sangre mancha las piedras de la calle, ríe, porque tu risa será para mis manos como una espada fresca. Junto al mar en otoño tu risa debe alzar su cascada de espuma y en primavera, amor, quiero tu risa como la flor que yo esperaba, la flor azul, la rosa de mi patria sonora. Ríete de la noche, del día, de la luna. Ríete de las calles torcidas de la isla. Ríete de este torpe muchacho que te quiere. Pero cuando yo abro los ojos y los cierro, cuando mis pasos van, cuando vuelven mis pasos, niégame el pan, el aire, la luz, la primavera, pero tu risa nunca, porque me moriría. Your laughter. Take bread away from me, if you wish. Take air away, but do not take from me your laughter. Do not take away the rose, the lame's flower that you pluck, the water that suddenly bursts forth in your joy, the sudden wave of silver born in you. My struggle is harsh, and I come back with eyes tired at times of having seen the unchanging earth. But when your laughter enters, It rises to the sky, seeking me, and it opens for me all the doors of life. My love, in the darkest hour, your laughter opens, and if suddenly you see my blood staining the stones of the street, laugh, because your laughter will be for my hands like a fresh word. Next to the sea in the autumn, your laughter must raise its foamy cascade, and in the spring, love, I want your laughter like the flower I was waiting for, the blue flower, the rose of my echoing country. Laugh at the night, at the day, at the moon. Laugh at the twisted streets of the island. Laugh at this clumsy boy who loves you. But when I open my eyes and close them, when my steps go, when my steps return, deny me bread, air, light, spring, but never your laughter, or I would die. Thank you.